to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, portion of Scripture we've already read this morning a little bit. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible in front of you. There should be a Black Pew Bible. It's on page 805. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through verse 20. We're in our fourth and last week in our series called Hark. Uh, We're looking at the message of the Gospel through the message that the angels gave to the individuals in the Gospel story. And today we get to the passage for which uh, this series really is named for Hark the Herald Angels Sing as the angels come and sing to the shepherds watching their sheep by night, announcing the birth of Christ. Let's read it in chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in a field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. So I'll admit it, uh, in 2014 when the book came out, I did read... Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Uh, as a dude, I feel like I should just admit that. Uh, the Life-Changing Magic of, t- of Tidying Up, a little short book, uh, a, good, a well-written book, on uh, the magic that comes when you clean up your space and you get rid of things. And um, I know many of you will be familiar with the book, maybe you're familiar with the Netflix series, of the same title, and I did not see the Netflix series. I heard it was a little annoying, but that's just what I heard. I don't know. Um, But uh, yeah, I did. I cleaned my room, Um, and uh, I felt better for a while. And if you know the philosophy of Marie Kondo, um, there's a phrase at the center of her kind of philosophy on cleaning up that uh, has, has caught the world by storm, and many millions of people have adopted it. And the phrase is, uh, does this spark joy? The idea is you grab an object in your life or in your room or wherever you're cleaning up, and you hold it, and you think about it, and you say, does this object spark joy? And then, if it doesn't, then it's dead weight in your life. And uh, you get rid of the item, 
So you only keep around the things that, that spark joy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good so far as it goes, right? I mean, none of us need a lot of stuff in our life. And so we as Christians will agree with that perspective, right? We don't need things to spark joy forever. There's kind of a recognition in the philosophy that, uh, that you should not surround yourself with just stuff. Materials have a uh, diminishing return, what we call a diminishing return. They, they en- we enjoy them for a moment and then they start to fade and so it's good to come back and say, is this thing still worthwhile having in my life? Let's remember that, kids. It's Christmas. Hard news, uh, you won't remember what your Christmas presents were uh, last, next year. It will be a faded memory, and as the years go on, you won't even be re- able to remember one thing you got at a particular Christmas. Stuff has diminishing returns, but my question for Kondo uh, is, why stop at Stuff. If this is the philosophy for, that you're going to build your life on, why stop at the material things in your life? Your spouse, when you hold them, do they always spark joy? Is it always the same joy? Is it the same joy as when you first met or when you first got married? Your kids those amazing beings that you share your life with, do they always spark joy? Is that always how you would describe them? When you sit down at your uh, day job and you come into your office, do you just get this feeling? This sparks. It's joy coursing through you as you pull up that spreadsheet. It's just amazing that you have this opportunity to have this joyful encounter as being a cog in the machine. I'm kidding. Not everybody has that and not everybody's there. Does everything spark joy in your life? And if it doesn't, should you get rid of it? Is that philosophy transfer over into the rest of life? Why shouldn't it? Why shouldn't everything spark joy? Why shouldn't we always be trading up for the things that spark joy? Why should we settle? I think what's good about the philosophy is, and, the, and what's so catching about the phrase is that we all want that joy. We want joy to be great and we want it to be lasting. And the lasting part is always the hardest one. Something that can not only be great to us and joyful, but can be great and joyful for the long haul. And we get trapped into thinking that something or someone or some way of thinking will bring that great and lasting joy. Maybe, maybe we know that it won't be a person. Maybe we know that it won't be a thing. And maybe we know that it won't be a job. But then sometimes we settle into a philosophy. Well, it's minimalism. It's stoicism. It's epicureanism. It's something that we f- latch on to and we say, that's, that's where it's at. That's where joy comes from. If I can just get to those places and, and embrace that philosophy, then I will have great and lasting joy. What we need to see is that those things, whatever those things may be, be it a philosophy, a thing, or a person, all of them, all of them have diminishing returns. 
And what we believe this morning as the angels proclaim to us, good news of great joy which will be for all the people that there is something that brings great and lasting joy. It's not a, it's not a thing. It's not another relationship in our life. It's not a philosophy. It's not merely those things. We believe that great and lasting joy is found in a message that we need to hearken to, that we need to listen to. The message of great and lasting joy is the Gospel, which just means good news. It's a message that if received, if believed, if acted on, if embraced, does bring great and lasting joy in the presence of many other things that have diminishing returns. So I want to talk about this morning how. Because that does not seem like a believable thesis. How does the message of good news actually bring great and lasting joy? How does it not just become another thing in our life that diminishes over time? And I want to suggest to you that from this passage, there's three things that the good news, the message that's proclaimed accomplishes that meets the deep stirrings and longings that we have for joy. There are three things here that the message of the, of the good news of great joy that meet us right where our deepest stirrings are and create that joy. And the first two are found in verse 14, which is a good summary verse as the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Let's go to that first one because the first deep stirring that we have is something to live for. Something to live for. And the thing that we're supposed to live for, that deep stirring that we have, is the glory of God. If you want great and lasting joy, you give your life to the pursuit of of the glory of God. The first goal of this passage, of every passage, of every historical event, of every marriage, of every conversion to Jesus Christ, of every vocation, of every job that we might have, of everything that we might purchase, we ask ourselves, does this bring glory to God? In our catechism, we say, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God. And so God's glory is on display here in this passage this morning. It's first a humble glory. It's seen in contrast to the humble environment in which it comes to us. This message comes, first of all, to shepherds in their fields, watching their flocks by night. Now, that's so familiar to us, and we've seen Charlie Brown Christmas so much, that we just accept that there's shepherds on the scene, you know, but You've got to ask yourself, why are there shepherds here? It's, Mary makes sense. She's going to be the mother of Jesus. Joseph is going to be the father, um, the earthly father. Zechariah, he's, he's a priest. That makes sense. That it would, that, and he's going to be the father of John the Baptist. Even the wise men, you know, that the gospel is going to go to the nations and, and, um, and that they're seeking after. The, it shows us that. Why shepherds? Why does the message come first to shepherds in the field? These seemingly random people hanging out in a field at night. 
It doesn't come to a king's court. It doesn't come to Herod. It doesn't come to um, the temple, to Zechariah, or anyone else that's on the, in the temple. It, does, it comes to the fields. And so one of the reasons why it does, I think, is because it's showing us this is coming to everyday people, and it's coming to the most humble environment possible. Shepherds were not respected. They had a reputation for being thieves. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, right? Sheep are really hard to identify. They, they weren't stamped with numbers. You know, they didn't have a, a little microchip in them that people would say, oh, that's my sheep. Shepherds often were accused of mixing crowd of sheep together and then coming out with a different number than they had before. Shepherds were ceremonially unclean. They did not worship in the temple because they were constantly dealing with dead bodies of animals, which made you unclean for worship. And they had to stay in the fields while the worship services were going on. They were a lowly group of people. And this is who received the message. And it sets up the whole humility of the event and the contrast of the glory of God. Look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That's the humble entrance that our God makes into the world in Jesus Christ. To shepherds is given a message of a baby in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Three times in this passage, the manger is, is mentioned. Why? It's like Luke can't get over it. It's like he's in a manger. That's where the the Savior of the world is. And so you see the contrast of the humble setting and then the glory of God comes with all of these angels and it shows forth that He is so glorious even in the most humble circumstances. It's not just a humble glory, it's a shared glory. The glory of the heavenly host first is given with the angel, the one angel in verse 9, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Notice that it's not the glory of the angel that overwhelms them. It's the glory of the Lord that overwhelms them. And then they're joined with a heavenly host. All of these angels are singing together. One angel is enough to cause fear striking in the hearts of the shepherds, but then all the other angels show up. And they give the message. And in verse 13, They give this, and suddenly there was an angel and multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The overwhelming glory was compounded into many different angels. There's only three times in Scripture that I'm aware of where we see this host of angels swarming in worship. The first would be Isaiah chapter 6. The throne room of God. Isaiah is transported to in a vision. And there's the seraphim constantly flying around the throne room of God saying, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. The second would be Revelation chapter 4 where the same scene is is picked up again, but this time it's the four living creatures of Revelation and the 24 elders who sit around the throne room of God and say, holy, holy, holy. And in both of those times, there's a, there's a 
We're let in to the throne room of God where there is a 24-7 worship service. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this is the third passage where the heavenly hosts are surrounding something, surrounding a new throne that's actually a manger, and they are proclaiming the glory of God. But there's a difference between Isaiah, Revelation, and this passage. In Isaiah, and, in for, the, and for John, the apostle who saw the vision of Revelation, those were both visions in which they were transported into the heavenly throne room of God. Here, the throne of God has come down to a manger. It's come down to earth. And what Isaiah said about it has truly happened. The whole earth is full of His glory. Heaven has come down. And now the angels surround the new throne and give it that glory and honor that Christ deserves. What I want us to see is that what this glorious display does is it motivates the shepherds, doesn't it? Verse 15 says in the second part, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. The glory of God, the fearful display was such a vision before them that they were motivated to say, let's go and see. The glory of God gripped them. It gave them purpose. It shook them out of whatever it is that they were doing. And we don't know anything about these shepherds. Maybe they were thieves. Maybe they were the worst of the worst. Maybe they were okay shepherds. I'm guessing that like all of us in this room this morning, they were a mixed bag. But they were doing what they were doing. They were look, had their heads down. They were looking at the sheep by night. The thing that God called them to do. But in the midst of that mixed group, there had to be fears, longings, minor joys, minor sorrows, major joys, major sorrows. After they looked at the glory of God, they were changed. Once they shared in the glory of heaven, they went and they shared that glory with others. That's what it says in verse 17. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. The glory of heaven was shared with them. And then the glory that was shared with them, they shared with others. It gave their life a purpose. And I think this is why, the second reason why God chose the shepherds. Not just their humble estate, but because in a sense they became the first shepherds of Israel. They became the people that came to this people that were like sheep without a shepherd, what Jesus would later identify them as. And they told them, this is it. This is the purpose. This is what life is for. This is the, the goal. It's the glory of God. We all need that. I think about this poem from uh, Wendell Berry, one of my favorite poets, and this poem in particular has gripped me so much. But he says this in one of his Sabbath poems, The mind is broken by a thousand calling voices. It is always too late to answer. And that is why it yearns for some hard task, lifelong, longer than life, to concentrate it and make it whole. 
the hard task, the lifelong and longer-than-life task that we are given is to live for the glory of God. To share in the glory that the angels have given us here in the newborn King. Do you want to live for something and have a joy that has no diminishing returns? There are no diminishing returns when you give your life's purpose to the glory of God. When you share in that yourself and then share it with others and you approach your job and you approach your family and you approach Christmas and everything that happens in your life with the one ultimate goal, the glory of God. It is a beautiful and endless goal. It will be the goal of eternity. Our chief end will, never, will not end with death. Our chief end will still be to bring glory to God. That's why it's great. That's why it's lasting. It's beautiful and endless. But the Gospel, if it could be conceived of, is much even bigger than that. The great and lasting joy is great and lasting because it gives us something to live for, the glory of God, but also because, secondly, it gives us something to live in. That's the second part of verse 14. God gets the glory. What do we get? Peace. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. The message brings great and lasting joy because it gives us something to live in. We live in peace. And I would say to you that that's the second stirring of your heart. Not just to have something to live for, but to have something to live in. Because you can have a major goal in your life. You can have a sense of purpose. You can believe in what you are doing and still not have joy, can't you? Aren't there churches even? Aren't there ministries? Aren't there uh, 501c3s that maybe have the goal of ending world hunger? I mean, what an amazing goal to have. What a thing that would bring God glory. But isn't it possible for that place, that ministry, that purpose to be filled with fighting and self-promotion and a lack of security? Isn't that possible? It is. But the Gospel changes that because it gives us not just the thing that we live for, the glory of God, but something to live in, which is peace. What kind of peace? Two kinds of peace. First, the peace between God and man. God and man. Peace. No more fear. They say to him, do not be afraid. Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy. Or as we sing about in the Charles Wesley hymn, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. There is now peace on earth because God and man have been reconciled. The good news is not that we go up to be with God in heaven and achieve some kind of status with Him. It's that He comes down and He has created the way for peace. As the Scripture says, He Himself is our peace. He, by His sacrifice, destroys the dividing wall between peoples. And so it meets all of us 
in our daily life when we are watching our sheep by night, whatever it is that we do, whatever provincial things that God has given, important things that bring Him glory that He gives us to do, meets us there and shows us that the purpose and the, the longings that we have are met in this, that we have peace. We have been reconciled. It's not just peace with God and mankind, it's peace among all peoples. As this next line of Charles Wesley's hymn, which, this, which is based on this passage, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. He's saying it's going out to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And even here in this passage, we see this in verse 10. This good news of great joy will be for all the people. All the peoples. In the next passage over, we have the song of Simeon who looks at the Christ child and he, he recognizes, I can, I can go now in peace. I have peace. Why? Because this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. This message comes to break down the dividing walls of war, of gender, socioeconomic class, young and old, male and female, is bridged. The dividing lines that we have placed are obliterated. We have peace with God and peace with others. Do you want great and lasting joy? Reflect on this. You have been reconciled with God. There's nothing left for you to do. You are at peace with Him if you receive this message, if you say this is good and lasting, great and lasting joy, it's for me. And it's for everyone else as well, for everyone who will call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that what we want? Isn't it what everybody wants, even if they are not a Christian? If you ask them, what would make the world a better place? They would say something along the lines of peace, world peace. Is that true yet? Because the gospel message has come forth. It's not true yet. Just like it's not true that, the, that in, a, in one sense that the, the glory of God or the knowledge of God fills the earth. Like we saw in the first point, that we don't live for the glory of God fully yet, nor yet is there true world peace. But it's Advent. We're leaning into what is already true but will be fully true one day. Don't you think that will be great and lasting joy to see all of the dividing lines fall away? I love how this passage ends because we're left with a little picture of what joy looks like in real time. We've been talking kind of philosophically. You need something to live for. You need something to live in. Peace. But I love how it comes into real time for the shepherds and for Mary at the end of this passage. Look at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Isn't that so beautiful? You see that joy? It's not just a philosophical, like, I know what to live for and I 
know that I'm free. I have peace with God. It's something that they took with them. And I think the third stirring that we have for great and lasting joy is this, something to live with. Something that really touches down in our life. Something that we need even this week to walk out of here and have great joy. It's not just future. It's not just mental. It's something that we experience or can experience on a daily basis. And doesn't that come with reflection? I mean, think about the most joyful people you know. Just think about who that is for a minute. They are ponderers and praisers, aren't they? This message comes, grips the shepherds, already has gripped Mary, and she is set to pondering, and they are set to praising. The people who have great joy are people who say, wow, a lot, aren't they? Think about that joyful person. This is, I'm the last person you should be listening to about this. I mean, my wife, she's the, she's the joyful person in our family. And I'm not good at this. She's the ponderer and praiser. Uh, Becca, for her, uh, any, a moon of any shape is amazing, right? Oh, it's a crescent moon tonight. Oh, it's a half moon tonight. Oh, it's a full moon tonight. Oh, there's no moon out tonight, you know? And I'm thinking... Well, it's going to be one of those, you know, like it's a, it's a cycle, you know, it's like I'm the searcher, I'm the seeker, I'm the person who lives for the future in our family. I want new understandings, new experiences. And that is good, that's a gift in a way, but it can lead to dissatisfaction, can't it? A lack of living in the present or knowing what joy is in the moment, And you see this, to find great and lasting joy, we must move some of our seeking to savoring. Isn't that what Mary did? She had questions. How can this be since I am a virgin? I don't know how this is going to work out, but the the moment the Christ child was born, she moved her seeking to savoring. She pondered all of these things in her heart. And the shepherds, they had questions. Just because they received a huge firework display of God's glory... They said, let's go and see this. Let's make sure it's true. The wise men, the same thing. Let's, let's seek out the stars. They, they seek the Christ child, and you need to seek what is true. But at some point, the seeking needs to move to savoring. At the end of our questions, at the end of our seeking, joy is something that we learn to quietly delight in. Do we want joy? Great and lasting joy. We do. How is it found? It's found in all these things, but ultimately it's in this. It's putting before us this dear Christ child. Taking delight in Him. The Savior who is Christ the Lord. And pondering and praising Him. Saying, wow, the mysteries. God in flesh mystery worth pondering that you have been led into this story why you that mystery is worth pondering the preciousness of Jesus Christ the profundity of his teaching the amazing 
completeness of His death, the unbelievableness of His resurrection, the power of His ascension, on and on again. To be captivated by that. That's where joy is found. We have something to live for. We have something to live in. Peace with God. But we have also something to live with. A Christ child born to us of the Virgin Mary. And it's attractive and joyful. I love this from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous pastor. He says, if ever the world needed the witness and testimony of Christian people, it is at this present time. The world is unhappy. It is distracted and frightened And what it needs is to see stars shining out of the heavens in the midst of the darkness, attracting the world by rebuking that darkness and giving it light, showing how it too can live that quality of life. This was, what, 70 years ago? This present time, he says, well, guess what? The world is still unhappy. It's still distracted. It's still frightened. And what he says is what it needs to see is the stars shining out and the glory of the Gospel being something that we live with and showing people the quality of life. Because Christianity at the end of the day isn't just a system. It isn't just a goal. And it isn't just reconciliation with God. It is not less than those things. It is those things. It is a goal. It is forgiveness. But it's more. It's a daily joy to follow God. It's a quality of life that we get this message to live in and for and with God. And we're looking forward to the day when what we sang about and hark the herald angels sing is going to be true. That all the nations will rise and will join the triumph of the skies. That this worship service, the glory of the angels, would not be something that is just in heaven or just come down to earth for a moment, but will be all of the earth filled with His glory. Let's pray.